You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My entree into the world of high-tech crime began innocuously in 1995 while working as a 28-year-old investigator and sergeant in the LAPD's famed Parker Center Police Headquarters. One day, my lieutenant bellowed my name across the crowded and bustling detective squad room. Good men, get your ass over here. I presumed that I was in trouble, but instead the lieutenant asked me a question that would change my life. Do you know how to spell check in Word Perfect? Sure, boss. Just hit Control f 2 I replied. He grinned and said, I knew you were the right guy for this case. Thus began my career in high-tech policing with my very first computer crime case. Knowing how to spell check and word perfect made me among the techno elite of cops in the early 1990s. Since that case, I have been a keen observer and student, not just of technology, but of its illicit use. Though I recognize the harm and destruction wrought by the misapplication of technology, I continue to be fascinated by the clever and innovative methods criminals use to achieve their objectives. Mark Goodman has worked as a consultant focused on the disruptive impact of advancing technologies on security, business, and international affairs with Interpol, the United Nations, NATO, the Los Angeles Police Department, and the U.S. government. He founded the Future Crimes Institute to inspire and educate others on the security and risk implications of newly emerging technologies. His new book is Future Crimes. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you, Rick. The pleasure is mine. In the opening of this book, you talk about a crime that you were called on by virtue of your abilities with WordStar. What was that computer crime back in 1995? So we had a case. I was working as an investigator, and we had our first computer intrusion case, and somebody had actually broken into the police department's own computers, and they needed somebody to look at that. And because I could spell check and word perfect, that made me the most technically sophisticated guy capable of doing it. And uh, I looked around for help. I called the FBI. I said, hey, you know, Sergeant Goodman, LAPD, we got a case. Can you help us? Do you guys have any computer crime experts? And I literally heard this at the FBI on the other end. Uh, hey, Joey, do we have a computer crime guy? Uh, no, he's going to school next year. Can you call back? <laughs> so these were early, early days. and We were all trying to figure it out ourselves. Boy, 1995, that just seems like an eye blink ago, but now it's historical fiction. Yes, in fact. You know, your book is so interesting because it talks about the future and the present. And I think that turns upon a William Gibson quote that you you, uh, mentioned, that the future has arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think that applies to the kind of crimes we read in this book, in this book. Absolutely. You know, there are many things going on in the world of digital crime and bad guys are abusing everything from robotics to artificial intelligence to synthetic biology. And while this information may not have leaked out to the general public, as of yet, it's already happening and eventually they will come to know what's going on. That sounds pretty scary to me. Uh, You know, at the core 
of these kind of of this entire uh, kind of crime, I think, is one concept that's really key, which is exponential change, which you come to again and again in a variety of ways. So, talk about your first experience as a as a criminologist looking at uh, ex- the effects of exponential change. Well, I came to that work and, and that research through both Moore's Law and Ray Kurzweil's book on the singularity is near. And what he points out is that all technologies seem to follow Moore's Law, named after Gordon Moore, the founder of the Intel computer chip company. And what he discovered is that basically computer processing power, price, speed, performance doubles every 18 to 24 months. So it's constantly doubling, doubling, doubling. That's why the iPhone that you have in your pocket today has more computer processing power available on it than NASA had during the Apollo 11 space launch. That's not uh, a joke. That's quite literally true. You have more CPUs in your pocket or your purse uh, than was available to all of NASA back then. So that doubling of price performance is key to understanding how society is changing and therefore how both crime and criminal justice is changing. The power of exponentials is really great, and people might get an understanding of how powerful they are by imagining this. If I take 30 steps linearly, one right after the other, I might get from here to the front door. But if I take 30 steps exponentially, doubling the distance I cover each time, I get from here to the moon. These are exponential times. And exponentials apply for the greater good, but they can also apply for harming people as well. And that's the beat that I cover, looking at how criminals, terrorists, and other rogue actors are abusing these technologies. Now, you write that, though I recognize the harm and destruction wrought by the misapplication of technology, I continue to be fascinated by its the way it's cleverly used. And I think that's a contradiction that drives not just your interest in technology, but ours also. And to a degree, uh, innovation itself is based all on this, this, the interest of criminals and the interest of people who are innovating is at core, it's the same thing. Absolutely. And criminals are great innovators. Eric Reese wrote a book called <laughs> The Lean Startup, and he talked about the need to innovate sort of at, at exponential rates. And criminals are quite expert at that, right, because they've always gone out of the system and they've been early adopters of technology. If you go back to gangland Chicago in the 1930s, right, the gangsters had automobiles when the cops were still on horseback and on foot, right? Then they had better guns. They had Tommy guns and machine guns and the like. When I was a patrol officer, in the early 1990s and late 80s, we saw drug dealers that carried pagers and mobile phones, you know, five-pound mobile phones, uh, but long before any cops I knew had them. And today we see them to continue to be at the cutting edge of both technology and innovation. And to the quote that you just read, you have to, at one level, begrudgingly admire their innovation. I talk about how criminals are using uh, crowdsourcing techniques these days, and it's just one example from the book, but it shows you how innovative they can be, right? Every new tool that comes out that's meant for good, they can turn around and abuse. And there's an example that I tell in Future Crimes of crowdsourcing a bank robbery. And uh, it's quite telling of, of how clever they can be. There was a man who walked into a bank in downtown Seattle 
and pointed a gun at the teller and handed her a note saying this is a stick up. Uh, the man got a bag full of cash, ran out, and the teller dialed 911. And the police officer said, okay, what'd the guy look like? And she said, oh, he was a male white, about 6'1", 200 pounds. He was wearing a construction helmet. He had construction goggles. He was wearing an orange construction vest. He had a tool belt, blue jeans, and construction boots. The cop said, don't worry, we're on our way. All of a sudden, the police start responding, lights and sirens. They see the construction worker there. Police, freeze, put your hands up. Guy puts his hands up. They take him into custody. Another police car is coming from another direction, and they take uh, and they're driving down, and they see an other construction worker, and they say, "Police, hands up!" And they take him into custody. And another police car sees another construction worker. Before you know it, the cops have twenty different construction workers in custody. What the hell happened? Turns out, before our bank robber went into the bank at 3rd and Main in downtown Seattle, he placed an ad on Craigslist, and it said, Wanted, construction workers. I will pay $50 cash, show up at the corner of 3rd and Main in downtown Seattle at 11 a.m., and I've got a construction job for you. And he wrote in there, Note, you must have your own equipment. You must bring with you a construction helmet, goggles, blue jeans, an orange vest, a tool belt, and boots. And so he got... 50 different construction workers to show up at the bank at the exact same time that he was committing his bank robbery. He crowdsourced his escape. He crowdsourced the bank robbery. And so while the bank robbery itself, of course, was criminal, illegal, illicit, and immoral, you got to admire the guy's innovation. That's one of the great, many great stories you tell. And I think one of the things that makes this book so interesting is the book itself is kind of a mashup of two very different things. On one hand, there's a lot of interesting looks at cutting-edge technology and how it can be used and how it can be misused. But also, there's a lot of great stories in here. Talk about pacing the stories. Well, that was one of my biggest challenges in thinking about writing this book is uh, I've been living this for quite a number of years, and I teach at Singularity University in Silicon Valley, where we spend time thinking about robotics and artificial intelligence and synthetic biology. But I recognize that those uh, scientific domains are not at everybody's immediate disposal. So I needed to think long and hard about how I could take rather complex technology and explain it in super simple ways. And I think uh, we achieve that based upon some of the feedback that we've had. So the goal is to present the technology, let people understand what is artificial intelligence, how do robotics work, but explain it in super easy ways and have lots of cultural references. So in the book, you know, I quote everybody from Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, Homer Simpson, up to, you know, Voltaire, Camus, Albert Einstein. So it's quite a mix of different things. And and then I just tell the stories, right, of these amazing criminals and the innovations that they are undertaking, like the Craigslist bank robber. One of the other themes that emerged as I read this book, and you say this early on, too, is that technology has always been a double-edged sword. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this book is all about, huh? It is. And I wanted to be balanced on this, right? We mm -hmm. know that there are, here in Silicon Valley, we have lots of techno-utopians where they think technology is the solution for everything. And then there are people that are broadly anti-technologies, kind of the neo-Luddites or the neo-techno-Amish, if you will. And what I wanted to do was to provide a very balanced perspective on this and say, yeah, technology can be awesome. It comes down to how we use it. You know, fire... 
was a technology. It was man's first technology. And you could use fire to keep yourself warm at night in the cave. You could use fire to cook your food, but you could also use it to burn down the village next to yours. And now we have all of these 21st century fires that we need to figure out how to use to the greatest benefit of humanity and how to control the downsides on. One thing that's happening, and again, another theme throughout your book, is that the very first computers were elaborate monstrosities and then very much like uh, Colossus the Forbin Project. They were big. They were in a building. They were in an air-conditioned room. And there wasn't much threat from them. There wasn't much action around them. And there were just a few. They were concentrated in one place. Now, computers are everywhere. We are living in an age of ubiquitous computing. Absolutely. And the point that you make is is that computers also are kind of disappearing, right? What we used to recognize as a computer, like whether it be like the ENIAC, you know, computers that took over the size of a building, three or four stories with vacuum tubes, they now fit in your pocket. And Mark Andreessen famously said that the founder of Netscape, he said, you know, software is eating the world. And what we are slowly seeing is that every physical object around us is being transformed one way into another into an information information technology. So we used to have paper maps. They've now become GPS GPS systems. We've had uh, music on CDs, and now that's streaming. We had films on on VHS, and then we had it on DVDs, and now that's Netflix. So everything is transforming itself into a computer, and we're even seeing this with much larger physical objects. So your car, something, you know, that used that 65 Chevy that used to be a mechanical device, now modern automobiles have well over 200 chips in them, computer chips, that control everything from the airbags to the ABS brakes to cruise control to what radio station you see presented on the screen before you. So a car really isn't a car anymore. It is a computer that we ride in. If you're in a modern office building, that elevator is controlled by a computer. An aeroplane is a Solaris box and industrial control systems that we fly in. And a pacemaker or diabetic pump is a computer that we implant into our bodies. So slowly but surely, all of these objects around us are becoming computers and they're disappearing into the background. The challenge is, is that one fundamental truth remains. There has never been built a computer system that could not be hacked. And so fundamentally, we've wired the world, but we have failed to secure it. And we're turning all of our physical objects into computers. We're completely dependent on computers as critical infrastructures for the modern trappings of our 21st century society, whether it be the electrical grid, 911 systems, electronic healthcare records in hospitals, ATM, stock market trading. It's all done by computers. And all of these computers can be hacked and manipulated by those who know what they're doing. And also, these computers do not respect, they do not care about any kind of uh, physical boundary that used to matter to us and used to make an actual difference. The, the lines on the land, the difference between nations, that's erased by computers. One of the things I say in future crimes is as prescient as the authors of the Treaty of Westphalia are or were, they never foresaw Snapchat. Right. They never saw that coming. And so this whole global system of national boundaries, borders, guards, gates, guns, you know, uh, frontiers that we used to control, 
The internet broke all of that, right? The internet broke governance at some level, and it certainly broke policing. In the old days, if you were in Santa Cruz or Chicago or New York City and somebody robbed the bank downtown, we know that the criminal was in the bank. We know that the local police were at, you know, would have jurisdiction. We knew that the victim was local. We would know that there'd be evidence left behind, DNA, photographs, fingerprints. The internet breaks all of that. That same bank in California or in Tokyo can be robbed from Moscow or Lagos. And while the criminals can transport themselves instantaneously across international borders, law enforcement does not work like that. If I needed, as a Los Angeles police officer, to get evidence from Paris, the number of forms that I needed to fill out and the delays, it could take up to two years using mutual legal assistance treaties to find out who was behind a particular IP address in Paris. Of course, the criminals can change that IP address in a mere number of seconds. So this is one of the fundamental things that's broken. You know, people say to me all the time, okay, so how do we fix this problem? Do we need more laws? Do we need more legislation? And what that shows is that people don't quite understand that fundamentally we have two different systems, right? We won't be able to arrest our way out of this problem because crime is global and law enforcement is local. I love that uh, quote, we won't be able to arrest our way out of this problem. That That's really uh, scary. You know, um, you have a, a great anecdote early on of a, a and this was well known that the fellow who lost his his entire had his entire digital world. Tell us uh, Matt Honan's story. So Matt Honan was a celebrated featured reporter for Wired magazine, one of the preeminent technology magazines in the world. And he was sitting at home playing with his infant daughter, waiting for a conference call to begin. And he looked over at his iPhone sitting on the table next to him, and he saw that the phone was rebooting. And he didn't know why, because he hadn't touched it. And then when he turned the phone back on, rather than seeing his phone, the screen that he was used to seeing, he saw the big white Apple logo and it said, do you wish to register this phone? And he's like, wow, that's odd. My phone is, you know, already registered. So he went over to his iPad and the same thing was going on. His iPad was being rebooted. So then he went to his laptop and he saw, wow, his laptop was being rebooted. And it turns out that a hacker had compromised his accounts and was able to remotely wipe all of his devices. So they were able to get into his machine. They were able to delete uh, his Gmail. Eight years of Gmail messages gone, erased in a second. They were able to get into his iPhotos that were stored in the cloud. Every single picture of his infant daughter from the time she was born until the age of two was erased. Photographs of relatives of his that had long ago since died Boom, erase, gone forever. So he had a digital life, as do we all, modern denizens of society, have digital lives, right? We have these digital alter egos. And in this case, a hacker halfway around the world was able to uh, bypass Matt Honan's password because passwords are broadly broken, right? Easy to subvert. Uh, Matt Honan ended up writing about this incident in Wired Magazine, and he said, you know, it's time to kill the password because most 
folks statistically use the words password or one, two, three, four, five, six. They use the same password for all of their accounts. And it now with the advanced computing power we have, you can go ahead and brute force a password, right? You can just go in there and try every single combination and be able to break in. That is the downside of our advancing computer capabilities. So Matt Honan wrote this article and the point that I make in future crimes is that this was uh, Matt Honan's trial and tribulation, but we all have more in common with Matt Honan, Matt Honan than we realize. I remember pretty vividly when the first the first computer worm to go out over Usenet uh, back in the mid eighties or so, and so and so that was uh, what you call malware. So explain what malware is and where that word comes from and the different kinds of malware. Sure. Well, there are malware is a uh, portmanteau of malicious and software. So malicious software, malware, that's where it comes from. And what it is, it's basically software that does things that you as the user or the owner of the computer system don't want to happen. So software today is really, really complex. There are millions and millions of lines of code in everything from Microsoft Office to Microsoft Windows to Adobe Acrobat, right? They're all really complex. And coding those perfectly is nearly impossible. So what uh, hackers do is they look for vulnerabilities, for errors in the code, software bugs that they can exploit to get your computer to do something that they want it to do and you don't want it to do and it's not supposed to do. And that could be everything from logging every single one of your keystrokes to remotely turning on your camera without your authorization. Malware will do all of that. And it's based upon these bugs in software. Fast forwarding towards the end of the book, one of the key things that I realized just putting on my investigator hat and going to the root causes of a lot of the cyber threats that we face today, it all comes down to poor implementation of software, right? Because there's no consequences. If Ford went ahead and created a car that killed people every few you know, miles, then Ford would be sued out of existence. But all of these software companies instead give us terms and conditions that say, we accept the software as it is. We release them from any liability. And, you know, who cares if we get robbed or if we get infected with malware? You also see this portrayed in a lot of the Silicon Valley mentality, which is along the lines of just ship it. Ship code is better than perfect code. Perfect is the enemy of the good, and let's just get it out there. And with respect to the software coders, coding software is not easy. It's incredibly complex. There are millions of lines of code. There is no such thing as perfect software, but there's also no consequences for bad software. And I think that if poor software approaches the line of being negligent in how people code, then maybe we should look at holding people responsible for their code. One of the parallels I drew in the book was looking at Ralph Nader and his book that he wrote in the 60s. I think it was called Unsafe at Any Speed. And in there, he took on the whole auto industry. So in the 1960s, we had tens of thousands of people dying in automobile accidents. They weren't engineered up to any code. There weren't seatbelts. Of course, there weren't airbags in those days. And Ralph Nader took on the automobile industry and got them to change their practices. Of course, they said it was impossible. They would go out of business. They couldn't fix things. But at the end of the day, uh, I saw a study that said that Ralph Nader's charge against the automobile makers was the most single significant public health Uh, achievement of the 20th century in terms of numbers of lives saved. So I'm not calling for perfect software, but I think if we could just make a 50% improvement 
in software coding, we would reduce potentially the number of software threats and cyber threats by 50% as well. Well, you also talk about the philosophy behind some software as break it. We have to break it to make it really great. It's really inspiring, Mark Zuckerman. We love whatever you do with Facebook, but maybe you shouldn't break it quite so much quite so often. Exactly right. Now, uh, one of the things I thought that was really interesting is that um, one of the natures, another part of the nature of this kind of crime is that you often don't know it's happening. And I think the uh, uh, a pretty terrible movie that had a really prescient uh, part in it was Superman 3 with <laughs> Richard Pryor skimming off the quarter <laughs> cent. Nobody noticed that crime was right. happening, but he was becoming very rich. And that's, right. that's a modus operandi for a lot of cr- this kind of crime, isn't it? Well, that is one of the biggest problems with the cyber threat is if you are a victim of an automobile theft, you go down to your garage in the morning and there's no car there, you are very likely to notice it. When somebody is a victim of a homicide, usually 90% of the time, 99% of the time, the body shows up. Here, People can break into your computers and you have no idea that they're there. And that's not only true for the end user at home, it's also true for corporations. As it turns out that the average number of days it takes to detect a fortune, the average number of days it takes for a Fortune 500 company to detect that they have been breached is now 211 days. That means bad guys, hackers, governments, foreign governments, rogue governments from around the world can be living inside your computer network, watching everything that you're doing, copying, downloading, changing information for seven months before you have any idea that they are there. There was another study by uh, the United States Secret Service and Verizon that showed that when a company is penetrated, that penetration, that hacking is detected by the system administrator only 6% of the time. 94% of the time when a company is hacked, it's because their customers call up and complain about something. It's because the FBI comes knocking on the company's door or because a third-party vendor reports it. So the biggest challenge with the cyber threat is that people don't know that they've been penetrated because the problem is invisible. And that creates a whole series of problems because if you don't know you're sick, how can you get treatment? How can you fix the problem? The, the uh, statistics that you give about how many intrusions there are and how far this reaches are really, really frightening. And I think in many ways you could just sell this book right as a straight-up uh, horror novel. <laughs> <laughs> the goal is, so as you go through the book, I, I did want to focus people's attention by pointing out research that shows to what extent the problem has grown. And I don't think people quite understand the, the extent of the threat. Uh, but my reason in writing it certainly was not to frighten people. It's public safety, right? Back mm. in the day when I was a patrol officer, it used to say on the side of the police car to protect and serve. And my goal in writing the book was to continue that service, right? If there was a dangerous alley where we had had a lot of robberies and the streetlights were out, you would want me to say, hey, Rick, that's a dangerous alley. Don't go down there because I could help you protect yourself. So by providing the information, the goal is not to frighten people. It is to educate people so that they can feel empowered, so that they know the risks that they face and that they can take steps to protect themselves. Well, we're taking more risks, and, and that's one of, I think, the great powers of this book is because we're taking more risks than we even are able to understand. 
because, as you say, we're getting everything on the grid regardless of the consequences. Yeah, we are putting every single device on the network, and that is about to grow exponentially yet again. Uh, One of the things that I write about in Future Crimes is the Internet of Things, right? We look around us today and we think, wow, we're living at the technological pinnacle of the world. We are at the greatest time in technology in the history of mankind. And that's true for now. But that world is about to be significantly disrupted. We look around and we see our iPhones and our Game Boys and our Xboxes and our GPS devices. And we say, wow, technology is everywhere. But what most folks don't realize is that we are but at the first seconds of the first minutes of the first hours of the technological revolution. Our Internet today uses Internet Protocol version 4. That's the standard. That can support about 4.5 billion simultaneous connections to the Internet. But guess what? We've run out of space. We have more devices that want to talk online. So in the same way, when an area code runs out of phone numbers, whether in L.A., New York, or San Francisco, and they have to break it up into different area codes, we've had to do the same thing with the Internet. So we're transitioning from Internet Protocol version 4, that's what routes the traffic, to Internet Protocol version 6. Internet Protocol version 4 can support 4.5 billion simultaneous connections. Internet Protocol version 6 can support 78 octillion. I had to look up an octillion to see what the hell it was. And it turns out an octillion is a billion, billion, billion. So we can support with Internet Protocol version 6, the the protocol that we're switching over to in the next few years, 78 octillion simultaneous connections, which to put in perspectives that people can understand, today's Internet is the size of a golf ball. Tomorrow's internet is going to be metaphorically the size of the sun. That means that every car, plate, toothbrush, television, refrigerator, microwave, elevator are all going to be online and have an internet protocol address. And just one more other statistic to to point out how enormous IPv6, Internet Protocol version 6 is. We could take every grain of sand on this planet and assign it 1 trillion IP addresses with IPv6, right? So if you think that we have a lot of things connected to the internet today, you ain't seen nothing yet. According to Cisco, we're going to connect another 50 billion devices to the internet by 2020. And Intel computing goes even further. They say we're going to go ahead and connect another 200 billion devices to the internet. One of the main points that I say I mention in future crimes is before we connect 200 billion new devices to the internet, maybe we should think about securing them. Maybe we should know how to secure them, right? We should be engineering in security up front to avoid this massive threat. So as I mentioned earlier, we've wired the world, but we failed to secure it. You know, one of the things that you talk about uh, that I thought was so interesting and uh, was the way our infrastructure is set up. And there's two two halves of this. On one hand, we have uh, Mexican drug cartels setting up their own infrastructure, setting up their own cellular tow- towers. And on the other hand, we have all our own infrastructure, which is run with this kind of old, um, very old, what you call SCADA technology, uh, supervisory control and data acquisition. This is really old stuff from the 60s through the 80s, say, that's interfaced now to the Internet. All that stuff is online, and that 
create some really extremely perilous uh, situations. Those old systems, those SCADA systems, as you mentioned, or industrial control systems, used to be offline. And they used a technology called security through obscurity, or what I call the ostrich approach, right? Nobody knows what's going on inside the phone company or inside the power plant or the sewage treatment facility because it's not online. And so we don't need to secure anything because who would possibly come along and mess with it? Well, slowly but surely, those devices have been going online and we're seeing that they are becoming hackable. So we've had incidents where people have, for example, in Worcester, Massachusetts, a hacker turned off the land, turned off the runway landing lights as a plane was approaching for a nighttime uh, uh, flight arrival in Worcester, Massachusetts. We've had people in uh, Queensland, Australia, that have reversed the sewage treatment process and poured raw sewage out on the streets of Australia so that a Hyatt hotel needed to be evacuated. We've had organized crime groups down in Brazil take a city of over one million people and hijack their electrical grid and hold it for ransom, telling city officials that unless they paid a fee, a hostage negotiation fee, or unless they paid a ransom fee, that they would turn off the electrical grid. And the city didn't pay, and the criminals turned off the electrical grid. This also was at the core of the Stuxnet attack, which was the computer worm allegedly put out there by the United States that attacked the Iranian nuclear power plant at Natanz in Iran. So, you know, the United States believed that Iran was producing nuclear weapons, as does Israel believe this, and much of Western Europe. And the Iranians claim that they're producing peaceful nuclear energy. Well, somehow a virus, a worm, got introduced into that Iranian nuclear power plant uh, uh, called Stuxnet. And Stuxnet got into those industrial control systems, and it infected, it infected and affected the uranium centrifuges, which have to spin very, very precisely in order to create uh, uranium that can be used either for fuel or in a nuclear weapon. And even though all the screens of the engineers said everything's fine, all systems grow, all systems go, all the lights were green. In reality, the centrifuges were spinning out of control. And that is a problem that I call in-screen we trust. The Iranians were monitoring their screens. The screens looked great, but the worm had gotten in between reality, in between the physical world, in between what was really going on with those centrifuges and what was portrayed on the screens of the monitors back in the control room. And we have much, much more in common in this case with the Iranians that most of us realize because we can all be subjected to these in-screen we trust attacks, right? We get a text message that's from our wife or our mom and we say, oh, it's from my mom. But how do you know it's from your mom, right? Hackers can change that data. Uh, we go and pay attention to our GPS device and it tells us to turn right on Main Street and we turn right. But how do we know that's the right way? We look online on Yahoo Finance and we see that I IBM or Cisco is trading at this price. But how do we know? See, we worry about hackers stealing our information. In a sense, stealing the information is the best case scenario. The much worse scenario is that they alter the information without our knowledge. And we make decisions every single day, whether it be shipping at FedEx or how many you know pounds of potatoes they order at Costco. It's all run by computers and it's all hackable. You have so many great examples of this. One of the, the great uh, joys of reading this book is, is to go back and forth between 
the examination of the technology, each technology you introduce us to, and we get to see some of their good side and why they were implemented, and then we get to see how they were taken apart. And this brings me to another theme in your book, Crime Incorporated. Yes. But the, so tell us what Crime Incorporated is in your book. Welcome to the world of Crime, Inc., So they call it organized crime for a reason. And organized criminals have a big advantage over traditional legacy corporations. Uh, I have lots and lots of fun and funny quotes in the book. And uh, obviously, there's tremendous wisdom out there that other people have put out around this topic. And I try to uh, bring that all together and sort of cultivate that in the book. And for the Crime Inc. section, I think it starts out with a quote from Woody Allen. And he said, organized crime in America earns $40 billion a year and spends very little on office supplies, right? And so that kind of tells you, you know, what their tactical and technical advantage are. Organized crime is just that. It is a business and it's a growing business. And the sums that these guys make are ridiculous, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on which particular branch of organized crime they are involved in. Uh, They run just like corporations in some regard. I tell the story in future crimes of innovative marketing solutions. It's a company in Ukraine. They produce software. It was meant to be antivirus software. Um, they did lots of business all over the world. People would get pop-ups on their screen saying, you've got a virus. And they couldn't do anything else on the computer until they downloaded the antivirus antidote. And uh, tens, uh, hundreds of thousands of people did that. And they paid $49 to download Innovative Marketing Solutions product. What they didn't realize is that Innovative Marketing Solutions product wasn't antivirus as much as it was virus virus. So they really never had a virus, but their browser was hijacked. They were tricked. They paid the $49. They downloaded the product, the program, and it then infected the person's computer with viruses. Oh, and by the way, they just gave their credit card to organized crime. That business ran for uh, three years. Uh, They were very efficient. They had call centers that operated 24-7. They were able to answer calls in English, French, German, and Spanish. They had operators. They had a three-story building. If you look at the org chart, they had HR. They had um, coding. They had SEO. They even had quality assurance. So before the criminals released software onto the world that would infect your machine, they had quality assurance where they would run the malware against 40 different antivirus programs to make sure that it would never be picked up by any of them. They had incentive programs for employees. Whoever came up with the best hack of the month was given a Lamborghini or a briefcase with 50,000 euros. And they even had team building exercises for employees where they would go out by the the river and the lake and climb ropes and compete against each other to build esprit de corps. Uh, Innovative Marketing Solutions issued receipts to their customers for what they paid for. And three years later, when the FBI came in with Interpol to investigate them, they added up how much illicit, illegal malware software Innovative Marketing sold. And it was over $500 million. So this is a business. The And by the way, they didn't pay taxes on any of that. So this is a business, tons to be made and highly, highly innovative. Well, you also talk about the innovative and much more familiar or to the lucky (laughs) among us uh, business models of companies like Google and Facebook. These guys provide this great product for us all to use. It's totally free. Not really. 
Yeah. In future crimes, they say free is the most expensive price in the world, right? If you walk into McDonald's, they don't give you a free quarter pounder. If you walk into Starbucks, they don't give you a free latte. And if you walk into Macy's, they don't give you free clothes, right? So I ask people, I do a lot of public speaking, and I ask people, you know, who's a customer of Facebook? And, you know, all the hands go up. And I say, oh, you're Facebook's customer? Uh, how much do you pay every month? And like, oh, it's free. I said, oh, if you have a technical problem, you can call an 800 number and they're like no i'm like all right so you're not paying anything for it and you can't call them so why do you think you're the customer what most people don't realize is they are not facebook's customer they are facebook's product and that's okay if people understand the bargain that they're making that's perfectly fine 1.3 billion people around the world love facebook love using it use it every day but they don't realize they are paying for the service, but they're just paying for it with their data. That's Facebook's business model. They take all your data, your social network, your graph, your friends, your likes, your interests, your dislikes, and they sell that on to advertisers. And Facebook monetizes you. You are Facebook's product. You are Facebook's inventory. And if you add up the value of labor of those 1.3 billion Facebook users, and multiply it out. That's why Mr. Zuckerberg has a $50 billion, you know, personal net worth or whatever it may be. And you have free status updates. So Facebook users may be the largest unpaid workforce in the history of humanity. And they're driving great value for Facebook and its shareholders, and for its employees and for its owners. But it's not clear that the return on investment is exactly equal. And again, if people understand that, that's great. It's all delineated in the terms of service that everybody signs up for. Um, I have read and agreed to the terms of service is the biggest lie on the internet, right? We all click that box. We all agree to do it. But as it turns out, most of us never read that. And Facebook's own terms of service that used to be 1,000 words long when they launched is now up to 9,000 words, right? The U.S. Constitution is only 4,400 words. So in those terms of service, which I uh, call terms of abuse, uh, they tell you what they do with all that data. And the bottom line is, like, if you went into McDonald's and had to sign a 10,000-word agreement every time you wanted a hamburger, you say, mm, maybe this isn't in my best interest. So great products, use them if you will, but just understand the bargain you're making. They collect a lot of data. And we also have heard all the terror stories from Edward Snowden and all the bad things the NSA has done and they're collecting all our phone calls. And that surely is not exactly what we were signed up for when we got our cell phones. That said, what the government does with our data is, you know, maybe they're trying to protect us, but they're probably not using us for uh, as a product. And they're probably not selling our data. They're actually buying it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So all of the large social networks out there have a relationship at one level or another with the government, whether it be your cell phone provider. I think I tell the story in this book of AT&T contracting with the U.S. government or the U.S. government, more precisely, contracting with AT&T to share persistent data about their mobile phone users. And what the government doesn't pay for, it will often just take, uh, as has come out in recent revelations by Mr. Snowden and others. So through these proxy technologies, one of the amazing statistics that I came across when I was researching future crimes is that through your computer, through your social networks, through your mobile phone, through your GPS devices, the average cost 
for the government to do persistent surveillance on every American to know where you are, what you're doing, whom you're interacting with, has dropped to 5.6 cents an hour. So the U.S. government can monitor you perfectly through these proxy technologies for only 5.6 cents an hour, right? It's sort of Orwell's nightmare come true. And it's all because of the tech that we carry around us and because of those terms and services that we either agree to through these proxy technologies or that we put up with with our own government. You quote a a member of the Stasi, the notorious ex-East German uh, police uh, state monitors who watched over everybody, and they could only tap 40 phones in the entire nation at once. And, And they are like green with envy with the way things are now. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a parody that I put in the book, which was a great story that was carried out by the Onion News Network, uh, if you've seen the Onion newspaper. And it was a joke story where uh, Mark Zuckerberg was being uh, was receiving the intelligence star from the CIA and for Congress as the most decorated agent in the CIA's, you know, history talking jokingly about CIA uh, or that Facebook was a CIA plot. And they had a fake member of the CIA testifying before Congress saying, that, you know, uh, Facebook has replaced so many of our programs. We never thought that people would willingly give us the names of all their friends, their phone numbers, their dates of birth, their likes, their dislikes. But this has, you know, saved us hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's a funny clip, well worth Googling. You know, uh, two, you talk about our cell phones, which are just incredibly um, insecure and also huge uh, generators of data about us, our most personal data. With our cell phones, I mean, they don't need to, to put up uh, the CCTV cameras everywhere. We're carrying them in our pockets. Yeah, absolutely. This is one thing that's fundamentally changed, right? Let's take industrial espionage as an example. Back in the old days, if one company or one country wanted to commit industrial espionage, you know, we've seen the movies where the spy needs to break into the boardroom and hide a bug underneath, you know, the conference table in there. You don't need to do that anymore, right? Everybody's carrying the bug on them. They're bringing it into the room. You remotely turn on the conf- the video conference system. You remotely turn on the speakerphone or you remotely turn on the 50 phones in the room and you have access to all of this data. I refer to mobile phones as the snitch that we carry in our pockets, you know, 24-7 or in our purses. And that gives people almost near perfect understanding of what you're doing, right? Based upon where your cell phone is and the other cell phones around it, I can tell who your friends are, whom you're spending the most amount of time with, as an example. And of course, all of the various ports on the cell phone give you away in even uh, different ways. So there are accelerometers on the cell phone that tell us whether or not you're jogging, how fast you're moving. Uh, they can tell us, believe it or not, if you're holding your phone, whether or not you're right-handed or left-handed, how you type in your password. All of that can be monitored. And of course, those ports can be turned on remotely. So I tell several stories in future crimes about people who have had the cameras, whether it be on their cell phone or on their laptop computers, turned on remotely by hackers using malware software. And guess what? That little green light or that little red light that you're used to seeing on the camera when it's on, hackers can disable that as well. So there are definitely some considerations of how all of this data is used. Well, cell phones, laptops, in in uh, all with cameras, 
stalker's dream. In fact, there are lots of examples of stalkers using these devices. There are tools where you can actually infect a cell phone. And I talk about many of them in the book where a jealous ex-lover can send uh, you know, their ex an email message. And if they accidentally click on the wrong link, now their mobile phone can report where that person is 24-7. The same can be done on their computer. So yes, in fact, I, I also mentioned in Future Crimes that now one of the first things women's shelters are doing when uh, a victim of domestic violence is showing up is they're taking away their mobile phones before they even get there because uh, ex-lovers and boyfriends have used those to great effect to track down their exes and, and literally murder them. So you have to be very careful if you find yourself in one of those situations. Again, the fact that the cell phones have these capabilities is not necessarily the problem, right? They provide a lot of additional positive benefits, but it's in how we use this data, who has access to it, and more particularly, how long we keep it. In the United Kingdom, in Europe, they have something called the European Directive on Data Privacy that protects how this information can be used, how long it can be maintained. We don't have any such laws in the United States. Now, we would be lucky if it was just stalkers and that were using this kind of technology. Terrorists use it too, and they are uh, they are on the cutting edge. We've seen terrorists use technology in a number of situations. I talk about the 2008 terrorist attack in Mumbai, if you recall, at the Taj Mahal. Great story. Well told, too. Well, thank you. I was in India on the second day of that attack. I was working with Interpol at the time, and uh, the 2008 terrorist attack was carried out by an organization based in Pakistan called Laksha-e-Toiba, Al-Qaeda affiliates, broadly anti-India, anti-U.S., anti-Israel, and they were out there. Um, to kill as many people as they can. And so when the terrorists went from Pakistan into the port of Mumbai, they carried with them AK-47s and RDX explosives, hand grenades. We sort of expect that type of kinetic attack with terrorist organizations, but they also had with them mobile phones, Blackberries, uh, satellite imagery. They had uh, satellite phones. They also had night vision goggles. So they used those tools to great effect. And as they were using their guns to kill people, they were also checking in with a terrorist operations center that they had set up across the border back in Pakistan. So we've all seen like these, the television show 24, where you have the military or the FBI, they've got 50 blinking screens at their op center. The terrorists set up an op center too. And they were monitoring what the BBC, CNN, IBN, and other stations were saying in real time and then reacting. So operationalizing the open source intelligence that they gathered using their mobile phones and using it to find and locate additional victims to kill. There's also an anecdote in here where somebody is witnessing uh, the cops going after somebody and they catch they catch video of it and the thieves realize this and are able to reroute where they're going and and instead of being surprised by the police they are laying in wait for an ambush yeah we've seen lots of examples where because of technology bad guys whether they be terrorists or organized criminals or even street thugs are able to do significant counterintelligence on the police so in Poland at one of these occupy protests they actually launched an occupopter a quadcopter drone with an HD camera as the protesters were being surrounded by 
by the police. The protesters were flying their own quadcopter drone in HD, counter-surveilling the cops and seeing where they're going. In London, they created something called Suki, which was an app during the protests that occurred there a couple of years ago, where you could crowdsource the location of the police and use your cell phone's compass to avoid the cops, right? So we're seeing lots of tools like that. And it can put police in danger during the Boston Marathon, if you remember that explosion, that bombing that took place a couple of years ago, as the SWAT team was honing in on the two terrorists that carried out their attack. There's a great photo that ran in the Boston Globe of the SWAT team low crawling, trying to find the suspect and a bunch of people, five people hanging out uh, windows from their apartment building, taking photos with their cell phones of the cops and then tweeting them out so that every move of the SWAT team was tweeted out. The Boston Police Department had to put out an emergency tweet that said, please stop tweeting the location of the cops. You're putting our officers and the public at risk. So there is a flip side to all of this technology. And part of that flip side is that not just terrorists, not just stalkers, it's the governments. Tell us about the Chinese hacking army and the greatest theft ever committed on the face of the planet Earth. The greatest, the greatest. Well, there are lots of them, uh, to be honest. The Chinese government is very, very active in using cyber weapons, right, and cyber tools to get and take what they want. Uh, A lot of these are run out of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. There's one particular unit called 61398. It's in Shanghai off Pudong Road. It's a 12-story building where two to 3,000 people go to work every day hacking the world, whether it be the United States government or U.S. companies, European companies, Australian companies. This is a profession. Being a cyber warrior is a profession. And the Chinese use it to great effect, whether it be to go after the intellectual property of American companies that are working in tech, that are doing biotech, that are doing green energy, or even simple deals uh, with Chinese companies. Uh, They have the capacity to go in there and take what they want. Uh, As you pointed out earlier, obviously the Chinese are not the only government that are doing this. The the Russians are doing it. Iranians are doing it. Israel is doing it. And of course, the United States are doing it. There are over a hundred countries that have full on cyber warrior programs. And while it may have been expensive to create a nuclear weapon or to get an ICBM, you know, you've got a laptop, you're ready to go and become a cyber warrior if you know what you're doing. Part of the problem, too, is that because there's no regulation of any of this, people can do things that are just reprehensible but completely legal, including the Nielsen Television Company. <laughs> and with for patients like me. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that was an interesting statistic. We talked earlier about, uh, or an interesting story, we talked earlier about companies like Facebook going ahead and taking your data and using it as they see fit. And they wouldn't realize that the data that you provide in one context can be used against you in another. So there's a great website called Patients Like Me. And there are lots of patients out there that don't get the attention they need or deserve from their physicians for a whole bunch of complex systemic reasons. And so Patients Like Me was a place, it was a forum where patients with a variety of illnesses, whether it be diabetes or mental illness, could get together and discuss what was going on. And one of the forums on Patients Like Me was called the Mood Forum. And there was a gentleman on there who went ahead and was sharing all of his personal stories about depression and thoughts of suicidality. And he found tremendous relief and help in there uh, from his fellow patients. People were also suffering from other mood disorders. And eventually he got a notification 
information from the owners of Patient Like Me, who discovered that an affiliate of the Nielsen Media Company went into Patients Like Me and gobbled down all of the forms. They went ahead and took all of the messages that patients were confidentially sharing, they thought, and then used that took that data and sold it on to third parties. So here people were discussing their uh, struggles with depression, suicidality, um, bipolar disorder, substance abuse, and they thought they were having these discussions in private. As it turns out, Nielsen took the information, but patients like me, after that incident, after they disclosed that incident, came out and said, oh, and by the way, we sell this information too all the time. Patients like me, and other free site, how did they make their money? By going ahead and selling this information to third parties. So, you know, people share information all the time and they think they're sharing in a vacuum, but that information can be repurposed. I also tell the story of OkCupid, a free online dating site. And people use this free online dating site. And when they sign up for OkCupid, they get asked questions like, how often do you have sex? How many sexual partners have you had? Do you like using cocaine? Do you use marijuana? Do you use cocaine more than three times a week? All that very specific questions. And in the context of dating, it may make sense. Let's say you really enjoy smoking crack cocaine. Maybe you want to date a girl who also loves crack cocaine. Fill out on your dating profile, find the perfect crack addict boyfriend or girlfriend using OkCupid. And it may make sense to people who are looking for partners online. But what the people didn't realize is that OkCupid, the minute you say yes to those questions, they're dropping a cookie on your hard drive and they are taking the fact that you've admitted to using cocaine and they're reselling that to data brokers all over the country and all over the world. And so now you've just admitted to using cocaine. They're selling that data on to companies that help employers with background screening. So you may apply for a job at a company. You don't get the job and you'll have no reason why. You'll, you won't know why. And it turns out it was because of that dating profile that you filled out, right? Oh, and by the way, if you get involved in an accident, perhaps a DUI, now does that data become admissible? The fact that you admitted using cocaine and in other contexts, the fact that you admit that you like drinking, you know, seven days a week. So all the data that we share in one context uh, based upon these terms of service can be used against us uh, in another context. And that's something people need to be aware of. One of the things you talk about is the changing nature of, of privacy itself. I mean, Sheryl Sandberg su suggests, you, you write, that assertion of privacy rights is in contrast with true authenticity. And this gets to this notion of, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, why does it matter if we know everything you do? Right. So we quote Sheryl Sandberg. And of course, Eric Schmidt was being interviewed by Maria Bartolomo. And she said to him, what about privacy? And he said, well, you know, if there's something you don't want people to know about, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And I find um, both arguments uh, problematic. The fact of the matter is we all want privacy in our lives. You know, if the, the old trope is if you've got nothing to hide, then, you know, why do you care about this? We all have something to hide, right? You may not have done anything illegal, but do I want cameras in the restroom, you know, when I'm going to the bathroom? Do I want that video to be showed on a jumbotron at a Lakers game? No. We all have intimate moments in our lives with our spouses, with our loved ones, with our children, and we should be entitled to a certain level of privacy. In the European Union, they view privacy as a human right. There are national privacy commissioners in Canada, Australia, the UK, and we don't have any such position here in the United States. 
I think that the people whose data is being used should have greater control over that data. And we're starting to see a number of startups that are coming out that give more of that control back to the user. But it's going to be very difficult to protect against these privacy threats moving forward, not just because of social media, but other technologies like facial recognition, biometrics, you know, location-based services and the like. It's really going to be difficult and the society is going to have to deal with this in a number of different ways. Location-based services, that's an interesting concept. And this gets to this idea, my wife works with a company and that uh, has a website, and they create what they call stalker ads. And I never knew that you you know, you know think people can be stalked. How can you be stalked by an ad? But I, once she told me about this, I realized that somehow I had got cookies on my computer, and I was getting all these stalker ads because I would be looking at a news site like Boing Boing or something, and I see up there, there's an advertisement for a Mackie mixer from Sweetwater Sound. How did that get up there? They they have no association with Boing Boing, but that's the stalker ads. That's right. And by the way, all those cookies that we've seen in virtual space are starting to come to our physical space. So one of the biggest goals of retailers on the high street is to go ahead and cookie the street, take those same technologies and bring them into real life. Uh, the company Nordstrom's, the, the retailer, got in a lot of trouble for this because it turns out if you had a smartphone and if you left your Wi-Fi on, Nordstrom's was using a third-party company to track you in their stores. How much time you were spending in ladies' underwear, how much time you were in sheets or pots, pans, whatever it may be. And they wanted to look at how you were moving about their stores so they could change around the, their, their displays and basically sell you more stuff. Here's the thing. How did Nordstrom disclose the fact that they were doing this to their customers? They posted a sign at the entrance to the mall that was about six inches high, teeny little sign on the wall, and it said, Attention Nordstrom's customers. In an effort to improve our service delivery, which is always a clue, right? Anytime they want to improve their service delivery, it's not to benefit you, it's to benefit them. But in a way to improve our service delivery, we have started tracking users in our store based upon their cell phones. If you do not wish to participate, no problem. Just turn off your cell phone or don't come into our store. So now shrink wrap terms of agreement that we've seen in cyberspace are starting to come into physical space. And by the way, there were a ton of protests and Nordstrom's ended up stopping this, but they're not the only company. So if you leave Wi-Fi on your phone, there are trash cans in the city of London that inside the trash can have hidden sensors that are tracking you by your Wi-Fi. So the more of these ports you keep open on your smart devices, they are constantly pinging the world and telling them where you're going. Let's talk a little bit about the dark net. That seems to be the uh, subject du jour with regards to uh, lots of TV shows talk about the dark net. Exactly what is it? So most folks hang out on what I call the surface web. It is the nice part of the internet where the good people go. It's Facebook, it's Google, it's ESPN, it's Boing Boing, whatever those sites may be. And you can get to any one of those sites by going ahead and typing in a URL or address of the company that you're visiting. Sounds very easy. But there's this other part of the internet that most people don't know about, and that's called the deep 
web. In order to access the deep web, you either have to have a password, you have to go past a paywall, or you need specialized software. Much of the deep web is completely legitimate, like all the academic databases at a university like LexisNexis and the like. All of that is not on the Googleable part of the internet. You have to use special software or get access through it by uh, paying, going through a paywall. But there's also part, a subsection of the deep web, which is called the dark web. And this is where the criminals hang out and ply their trade. Most people wouldn't realize this, but Google only indexes 16% of the surface web. So they're only capturing 16% of the surface web and their spiders, their indexing spiders, have no ways to access the deep web. That means they act, that means that Google only goes ahead and spiders 16% of the surface web and 0% of the deep web. Therefore, when you're doing a Google search, you are only searching 0.03% of the available digital information on our planet. So we think we're getting all the world's information, but actually we're missing the overwhelming majority of it. So if you're searching Google to look for something, it's as if you were dragging your fishing net across the top two feet of the ocean, but missing the Marianas Trench of information that's available underneath if you know where to go. And to access that deep web, one of the tools that people use is something known as Tor or the Onion Router. TOR stands for T-O-R, the Onion Router. It's a piece of software that was actually created by the U.S. government, the U.S. Navy, initially to help democracy and human rights activists overseas get access to uh, information outside of their country so that human rights activists in China, Iran, Syria, and elsewhere could bypass national firewalls using TOR and get access to free information. Like all tools, of course, it didn't take long before the bad guys were using it too. And so Tor has been adopted by criminals to get access to the dark web. Again, there's lots of legitimate uses for Tor. You know, hundreds of thousands of people rely upon this every day to bypass their national firewalls. But criminals use Tor to get access to the dark web. And what that means is once you launch the Tor browser, if you know where to go, you can buy any sort of illicit substance you want online. Everything from child pornography, stolen passports, uh, assassin services, drugs, firearms with the serial numbers taken off. It's a little bit like Dante's, you know, circles of hell. You can go deeper and deeper and deeper and find more and more disturbing things there. And because all of this traffic is encrypted, traditionally criminals have plied their trade selling these illicit goods in the dark web with immunity. You give us a great variety of different kinds of crimes, whether it's all the information that we have on Google that can be easily uh, misused by anybody who can, else who can get access to it, to the way terrorists are able to crowdsource their crime. Tell us about some of the solutions to this. Well, I didn't want to just write a book about the problems, right? I wanted to people to understand the problem. I wanted to introduce them to how rapidly the bad guys are running ahead of the good with these technologies. But the last few chapters of Future Crimes are very much focused on solutions, both tactical and aspirational. So in there, I talk about the way that we currently do coding, the number of software bugs, and how we need to change that. I talk about the power of encryption for protecting our data and why perhaps we want to encrypt 
all of our data and the internet as both a means of privacy and crime prevention. I talk about the models that we use to deal with the cyber threat now. Right now, we use mostly a law enforcement approach. We should arrest the people that did this. But as I've noted, we're never going to have enough cops. International law breaks. Uh, the internet breaks international law and policing. And so I think and I think of and propose other models. When it comes to the cyber threat, we often use the language of medicine. We talk about computer viruses. We talk about infections. We use the language of medicine to describe the problem, but we don't use the language of medicine to talk about the solutions. And I think public health and epidemiology are two great models that we could apply to the cyber threat. So if you think about somebody with measles or Ebola, we don't try to arrest them. We try to isolate them. We try to treat them. We try to make them well, and we try to keep healthy people away from them. I think taking an epidemiological approach to the cyber threat using concept of cyber hygiene as a public health model could go a long way to helping protect ourselves. And moving forward, I think there are opportunities for us to create new institutions, such as a World Health Organization for cyber, that could help isolate and limit these threats. Beyond that, other types of tools will be required. I talk about the power of innovation and creating a incentive prize through the XPRIZE Foundation for cyber threats. You know, if you think about uh, Charles Lindbergh, he did not just cross the Atlantic to do it. There was a twenty-five dollars or $50,000 purse that was put up back in the day that drove tremendous innovations in the very early and young field of aviation. And I think an incentive prize through XPRIZE, an incentive prize for cybersecurity could drive tremendous challenges. The other thing too is that we're never going to have enough people to handle this problem in government. The bad guys are using crowdsourcing techniques to carry out crime. I think we should definitely be using crowdsourcing techniques to help drive our own security, right? Our security is too important just to leave in the hands of government. They've proven their inability to deal with this threat. So I think that we can crowdsource this. And one of the things I call for is the creation of a National Cyber Reserve Corps. We have Reserve Marine, Air Force, Army. We have Reserve and Auxiliary Police Officers. We have FEMA to deal with natural disasters. But we don't have any cadre of people that can respond to the inevitable cyber threats that we'll be facing. And I think those people could be 80 years old and retired. They could be eight years old as long as they've got the technical skills and can pass the background, we should be using them. And then lastly, I think we desperately need a Manhattan Project for cybersecurity. When I say that, I'm not talking about a military project per se, but in future crimes, I point out how connected we are through these information systems, how dependent we are on them for our modern way of life, and how vulnerable they all are to hacking. If you look at the original Manhattan Project, the people of the time, the Allies, faced an existential threat, which was the possibility of Germany getting a nuclear weapon and using it against the Allies. To respond to that threat, the Allies assembled 120,000 people in the United States working in secret around the clock to respond to that threat. The difference between those people and the threat that we face from all of these insecure technologies is that they were intentional about the security threat before them, and we frankly are not. Now, I don't mean to imply that a nuclear explosion is the same thing as getting your computer hacked, but if you think about the tools that we're building our modern society on, the electrical grid, air traffic control, financial services, 911 dispatch, if all of that were to go away, 
If we didn't have electricity, if we didn't have clean water, if we could not engage in commerce, our world would look very, very different. And so I think it's a serious threat. And the time to prepare for it is now, before the disaster happens. And lastly, I think we can do this. Right. President Kennedy said in the 1960s, before this decade is out, we are going to put a man on the moon. We did that. Human beings, we did that. Americans, we put a man on the moon. Surely if we can solve that problem, we can solve this cyber threat. But it's going to take intention and focus, two things that are sorely lacking. But if we do it, if we provide that intention and focus, we can have tremendous benefits from all of these technologies before us. We can live a life of tremendous abundance, but we're going to have to deal with these security issues first, and that's what Future Crime is all about. And as you point out in that book, uh, our iPhone has more computer horsepower than put man on the moon. Absolutely. I've been speaking with Mark Goodman. His new book is Future Crimes. Thank you for speaking with me, Mark. The pleasure was absolutely mine, Rick. Thank you for a great conversation. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.